The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Output, knowing how much mm. urine they make, is very important. And now since we don't use Foley catheters in the hospital with the risk of infection, that's one of the, the biggest issues I have. First, rule out reversible causes and obstruction, which I don't see anyone at all doing when they characterize AKI to the state. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's Annals on Call is based upon an article titled Acute Kidney Injury, published in 2017 in the In the Clinic section of the Annals. Joining us today is Dr. Ashida Talwani. Dr. Talwani is a professor of internal medicine and nephrology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. She received her MD at UAB, as well as her residency and renal fellowship. She has a Master's of Science in Epidemiology from the Harvard School of Public Health. She primarily studies acute kidney injury, especially in critical care units, where she does both nephrology and critical care medicine. She's an outstanding teacher who's won numerous teaching awards and numerous awards for clinical excellence. I believe you will enjoy her discussion of acute kidney injury in this podcast. Ashita, thanks so much for joining us. Throughout my career, I've seen a lot of people who had a variety of reasons for elevated creatinines acutely in the hospital. Recently, KDGO came up with the term acute kidney injury, which drives me a little bit crazy. And the reason it drives me crazy is I think a lot of people interpret the term acute kidney injury as if it's a diagnosis, but to me, it's a question, and the question is why they have acute kidney injury. Am I just an old guy, uh, curmudgeon, or is there something there? No, I agree with you completely. I mean, the whole purpose of developing the terminology was just so there's a homogeneous definition, so you can do epidemiological studies and clinical trials. But the problem is with the definition, it doesn't tell you the etiology of AKI. And now so many clinicians are focused on defining AKI without even looking at the cause of it. And each cause of AKI etiology has different outcomes. So I do think there's a problem with the terminology. So we'll get back to that. I want to go to the KDGO definition of AKI, which includes an increased creatinine within a two to seven day period and oliguria for six or more hours. And this was my first question because when I was taught, which is admittedly a long time ago, oliguria was defined as less than 20 cc's per hour. This article suggests weight in kilograms divided by two cc's per hour. So like for me, that would be 40 cc's per hour. Have they changed the definition, and how do you separate oliguric for non, from non-oliguric in your experience? So essentially, where that terminology comes from is if you look at the pediatric literature 
Um, if you're less than one year old, they recommend or they, they state that Oliguria's classified is at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour. And so I think when they did the KDGO guidelines, they used that as an assessment for their observational studies. And so there is even controversy about that, absolutely. And some of the controversy is that they may be even more liberal than it needs to be in terms of the definition of Oliguria. Okay. As you know, I do a lot of inpatient uh, attending and work with house staff teams. Often we have patients who present with an increased creatinine. They could have come out of the ICU. They could be coming from the emergency department. We know that they had a creatinine of 1.2 two months ago, and now they're admitted with a creatinine of 1.9. Before we call renal, what are the things that, as a hospitalist, I should be thinking about before I call my renal consult? So I think the most important determination of etiology of AKI is a good history and also medications that could cause or not nephrotoxicity and physical examination. So those are the basic elements to determine what the etiology is. And then, of course, besides getting a renal panel, getting a urinalysis. And then in that situation, if the etiology is still unknown or there's concern that the urinalysis is not straightforward, then, of course, a nephrology consultation is indicated. So many years ago, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the fractional secretion of sodium because the guy who developed it was my attending the month after the article came out in JAMA, uh, Carlos Espinel, and he really focused on the big risk of volume contraction versus ATN. I remember being taught that volume contraction is the biggest risk factor for ATN, which makes all this very complicated. I also know that it's difficult to diagnose volume contraction. And I know you do a lot of critical care stuff. How do you think about volume contraction in 2019? Do you just empirically give people a bunch of fluids? Do you do an ultrasound? Do you look at the weights? I mean, how do you get at this volume contraction problem? So to try to determine volume status on a patient in hypovolemia, I think is still very difficult. On the floor patient, you still have the usual physical exam findings that you look for, orthostatics, uh, skin turgor, all those kind of assessments we normally do. And the critical care population becomes difficult because most patients have edema for various other etiologies. And so then it becomes using all the different diagnostic processes you have to determine if someone is volume responsive or not. And so we're talking about the non-invasive monitoring, such as systolic pulse variation, echocardiography, looking at the IVC. Even assessments with straight leg raising has been reported in the literature to try to see if someone's really truly volume responsive. And there's limitations to all those studies. And so eventually what happens is if you think someone meets a clinical diagnosis, giving them a fluid challenge is reasonable. But I think, you know, there's so much data out there that fluid overload is bad now in the critical care setting that when you're giving a fluid challenge, we usually now give smaller challenges, maybe 500 cc's, rather than giving a liter or more than that and just seeing how they respond. Do you think it makes a difference whether we use saline or uh, lactated ringers? Not at this point. I mean, if you look at continuous maintenance fluid and resuscitation, there's more data suggesting that balanced solutions are better and cause less nephrotoxicity. And if you look at all the ICUs now, they have moved towards lactate ringers. But I think if you're looking at small volume challenges at this point, there's no evidence to suggest one is better than another. I know I've had several patients on the floor, and fortunately, the uh, house staff program that we work and most of our residents know how to do uh, IVC ultrasound. 
And I've made a couple of volume contraction diagnoses by having the residents go and check the IVC and be surprised that the patient is volume contracted. I think prior to giving up on the idea of volume contraction, that may be a worthwhile thing mm-hmm. to do. Absolutely. It's operator dependent, of course, and there's a lot of limitations yeah. based on you know patient habitus, but absolutely. I can see all of us, you know, running around with these ultrasound devices in our pocket now, and they're available to be able to determine this. The good thing is that despite me not having learned it yet, uh, I'm around a a lot of people who have, and I can get that done uh, fairly quickly. What are the big things that you look for in the urinalysis? Because I think getting urine and looking at and measuring things actually does make a difference in my approach. Uh, Now, maybe that's old school, but you see a lot of these patients, Mm -hmm. especially in the critical care. What do you learn from the urinalysis? I think more than urine indices like sodium, Mm -hmm. fractional secretion of sodium, fractional secretion of urea, et cetera, I think the urinalysis is the most essential. Because if you look at the most common cause of AKI in the hospital setting is acute tubular necrosis. And probably the second most common cause is some sort of uh, hemodynamic AKI you want to call it pre-renal mm-hmm. or transient AKI that's reversible. And determining where on the curve or the or the, basically the spectrum we are, that's very important. So for me, almost every patient that I'm consulted on, I look at the urinalysis. And the specific thing I'm looking for is the presence for ATN granular cast renal tubular epithelial cells or in, in certain decreased effective arterial circulation, you will see more like hyaline cast where the kidney has not yet at the point got into a tubular dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Specific gravity is very helpful too. A concentrated specific gravity indicates, of course, that the kidneys are still able to retain sodium, water, et cetera, and there's still tubular function, while an isothenaric specific gravity indicates more that there's tubular damage. So I use all those things. The other thing that's more prominent now in the ICU setting is the fact that there's more and more diagnosis of acute interstitial nephritis from antibiotics, specifically since we use a lot of antibiotics with a combination of vancomycin and zosin, and it's all over the literature. And that's very difficult to essentially diagnose because the typical findings of peripheral synophilia, urine synophilia are not useful. So again, looking at the urine sediment to see if there's white blood cells, red blood cells, and white blood cell casts have often led me to a different diagnosis than I would have made just by the clinical setting. Well, that raises some very interesting questions. I'm not sure all of our listeners know how to interpret the urine-specific gravity. So could you define isothosthenuria and define concentrated urine by specific gravity? Because I think that that's very helpful, and it may help some people start to look at their urinalyses differently, because I see way too many students and residents who never even report the specific gravity. So specific gravity is essentially a poor man's function of how much osmols are in the urine. And so if you look at, you, for instance, our institution's specific gravity, the highest range is 1.035. So anyone who has a specific gravity, 1.020, means the kidneys are concentrated and able to do that. Now, there are other things that can artificially elevate your specific gravity to a, a super physiological level, such as contrast, the presence of protein in the urine, the presence of glucose or other osmoles in the urine. So it's not completely accurate but it's a very good assessment of whether the tubules are still functional. Isothenaric specific gravity, just basically it's a specific gravity close to 1.010. It essentially says that the tubules are damaged, the kidney can't concentrate or dilute the urine, and so the specific gravity 1.010 corresponds to the urine osmolality is the same as the serum osmolality. 
I think that's very helpful, and uh, I love the way you said that because it's almost exactly the same way that I say it. Uh, awesome. And uh, maybe I taught that to you when you were a resident. You I don't know. <laughs> you could have. Uh, but that was that was a, a number of years ago. Uh, so you're in the ICU a lot, and you see a lot of ATN. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see ATN, what are the primary causes in 2019, and what do you do about this? And what should the house staff understand about what you're doing about it? So most of the causes of ATN in the ICU setting are actually multifactorial. So there's some situation where the patient is hyperperfusing the kidney, whether it be from sepsis or hemorrhagic trauma, etc. And in that setting, they then, on top of that, get other insults that may be indicated for medical reasons, such as IV contrast or essentially medications for sepsis that are nephrotoxic. So it's not usually just one hit, it's several hits that occur at the same time and then the kidneys develop ATN. At the point of ATN, I think the most important thing to remember is that once the tubules are damaged, giving more fluid at that time is not going to help kidney function. In fact, there's more and more studies that suggest that if you overload a patient, you have venous congestion, you can delay recovery of AKI and even potentiate it. And so I see that mistake given a lot still in multiple ICUs is that we're just going to give more fluids to the patient to see if we can get through this ATN, and that's the, the wrong answer. Supportive care to this day is the only thing that can be done. And with supportive care means actually minimizing fluids so you don't volume overload the patient. And I'm paying very close attention to basically dietary changes that need to be made so patients don't accumulate potassium, phosphorus, etc. So during this phase, as, as I remember and read about it, there's an oliguric phase and there's a non-oliguric phase. Some patients start out in the non-oliguric phase, never get to the oliguric phase. Why is that? Non-oliguria is thought to be a better prognosis when you have ATN that there's less tubule injury than someone who's oliguric. In fact, now to test someone's tubules in the ICU setting to see if they're likely to recover, there's something called the furosemide stress test, which is something we've been using for years, and I trained with Dr. Rutsky who taught me, but now it's been formalized. So what happens in that situation is if you have a patient who you consider is not hypovolemic or maybe euvolemic or hypervolemic, if they're Lasix naive, you give one milligram per kilogram. If they're not Lasix naive, you give 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. And then you look at their urinary output for a two-hour period. And if their urinary output within a two-hour period is less than 200 cc's, then there's a very high likelihood that the patient will need renal replacement therapy and the severity of kidney injury is such to that extent. And so essentially, it's just, again, not always, but more assessment of the severity of kidney injury. So this is a bolus of furosemide. It's a bolus. bolus of furosemide. Yes. Okay. That's really helpful. What happens, and this happens a lot, when you're on the floors, patients will have ATN in the ICU, and for some reason, they're always being transferred out while they're transitioning from oliguric to Mm non-oliguric. So we end up seeing most of the post-ATN diuresis Mm -hmm. on the floor. Could you explain that to everybody? What is this diuretic phase, and why is it so dangerous? So essentially, all that means is the kidneys have now recovered tubular function. So the VUN and other uremic toxins that have accumulated, the kidney is able to do a solute diuresis. And so essentially, that solute diuresis could be so massive that the patient could become hypovolemic and potentiate the AKI. 
But honestly, what I see most of the time is most of these patients, especially if they come out of the ICU, have accumulated so much fluid, they actually need that diuresis. And so I see health staff trying to replace the fluid, um, giving them out ins this, that they get out. And actually, that's a vicious cycle because the more fluids you give to a patient when their tubules are still injured, the more they're going to pee out. And so essentially, I don't recommend giving fluids after in a post-ATN diuresis phase until there's clear evidence that the patient is becoming hypovolemic. And even then, I would not replace it completely. Well, this gets me back to one of my old school things. I, I like following weights. I'm really a big fan of weights. Um, I've actually diagnosed volume overload before seeing the patient just by looking at the weight chart. Mm -hmm. Do weights help you in this situation, or is it complicated by the fact that they're probably not eating much during this period? I believe in weights, the, uh, but they're, they're very difficult to get in the hospital setting mm. because often, even if a patient's able to stand up, unfortunately, what I find out is the patient's weight on the bed, and there's so much inaccuracy, mm. and even getting daily weights sometimes can be a hassle. The other thing I should mention is, you know, when someone calls us for AKI, when you mentioned earlier what should the hospitalist or you know, primary care mm. be doing, getting... Output, knowing how much mm. urine they make, is very important. And now since we don't use Foley catheters in the hospital with the, because of the risk of infection, that's one of the, the biggest issues I have is, that, well, two issues, is getting the urinary output recorded and the weight. I agree. Mm. If the weight's going down and they become hyper, that's a very good indication of hypervolemia too. I want to go back to something that you said earlier because one of my pet peeves is the vancomycin peptazo cause of interstitial nephritis. Right. And I think we just ought to put that in here someplace. I, I actually have a ban on that combination <laughs> on my service. Uh, when I inherit a, a patient from from that's transferred to my service who's on Vank and Piptazo, the first question I ask is why and do we have any other options? Am I just Again, a, a curmudgeon and a mean old bad guy. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. In fact, if you look at infectious disease consults, now they highly recommend getting off that combination. And in their notes, they mention the literature involved. Mm. And so we're seeing more combinations of cefepime now instead of using that combination of vank and zosin. In fact, I'm seeing less and less of that combination, which is really mm. makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, it gives you uh, gives you some less patience, and right. there are many days that you'd like to have a few less patients. That's right. There's a different place in this article, and, and I got really confused, where the they say the Cadigo guidelines define AKI as an increase in the serum creatinine by greater than fifty percent within seven days, or 0.3 milligrams per deciliter within two days, or oliguria for greater than six hours. But that's a little bit different than from the introduction, so that confused me. How do you define AKI? So the actual KDGO guidelines are basically a greater than equal to 0.3 milligrams per deciliter in 48 hours, or 1.5 times the baseline over seven days, or the oliguria component. And the reason they were developed is basically looking at observational studies where mortality increased. And essentially, it's interesting because, you know, we talk about this pre-renal AKI, whether the AKI definition contains pre-renal AKI. If you look at the actual Aiken criteria before KDGO took it over, they actually say that the reason for the 48 hours for sustained AKI is to first rule out reversible causes and obstruction, which I don't see anyone at all doing when they characterize AKI to this day. I'm so glad you brought up obstruction because I've seen a number of patients admitted to the hospital over the years who 
had obstruction that people thought was either acute kidney injury or new chronic kidney disease, how should we work up each patient for obstruction? Because I've preached for years, if you don't rule out obstruction and they have obstruction, that's a big mistake and you look stupid and you don't want to look stupid. I totally agree. Now, there's more recent studies that say unless you have clinical evidence of obstruction, you should not get a renal ultrasound and it's not beneficial. Mm. But I disagree with my experience because there's plenty of patients I've seen now that we don't use Foley catheters, essentially have no symptoms at all and have obstruction, which is easily fixable. Right. So uh, I always ask for a bladder scan or a quick yes. in and out cath. Me too. I remember a lady that came in with a creatinine of like eight and they hadn't ruled out obstruction. She'd had diabetes for 15 years. I said, she could have obstruction. They said, but she doesn't have a prostate. I said, no, she could have obstruction, and she had a liter and a half uh, neurogenic bladder. I just had a patient <laughs> recently like that who was, uh, she's 20 years yeah. old, diabetic, same same thing two days ago, and she was making no urine. I said, yeah. has anyone looked for obstruction? Yeah. And sure enough. So exactly, bladder scan or at least in and out cath and formal, or right. formal ultrasound. And, the, and then the uh, upper level, there's a number of different things that I've seen. I've seen bilateral kidney stones without pain. Uh, it, it happens. Uh, uh, you can see uh, retroperitoneal fibrosis. You can see metastases. You can see people with one kidney and you didn't know they had one kidney. Absolutely. And so I guess we're spending a little money, but God, you hate to miss it, right? You're spending money, but consider the consequences of AKI. So yeah. I think it's worth it in the long run. Okay. Let's go back over. There's one really final question, then we'll sort of summarize. So we get the patient, we try to make a diagnosis. The urinalysis is going to help, physical exam is going to help, maybe ultrasound of the IVC, maybe a 500cc crystalloid challenge mm -hmm. and see if they respond. Mm -hmm. If we think they have ATN, we might be doing the furosemide challenge. We'll go back over that because I really like that. Now the patient's discharged from the hospital, goes back to their primary care physician, and they had ATN. So we determined they had ATN. Mm -hmm. There's stuff in the literature now that says these people are more prone to chronic kidney disease. Mm -hmm. What would I need to know as an internist doing outpatient medicine whose patient had ATN? How do I follow them up? Do I follow them by myself or with a nephrologist? Can I get a nephrologist to see my patient? All of the above. So basically, yes, AKI leads to CKD. We know that. And at UAB, for instance, we have a AKI post-discharge clinic where patients with AKI can come to this clinic. We call it our CKD clinic for follow-up. If they can't follow up here, we then talk to the primary care physician, make sure they follow up within two weeks. So I think it's very important for primary care physicians to understand that these patients can progress and they can be monitored carefully. And the things that need to be told, which gets left out when they're discharged from the hospital is when their kidneys are not recovered yet, is the things to do to avoid further injury. They should be voiding non-steroidals. That should be in the, basically in the discharge summary, discharge talks with discussions with the patient. Um, how to stay adequately hydrated. What things to look for in terms of their kidney function if they start deteriorating. And then over time, these patients need blood pressure management. Look for microalbuminuria, which is a, basically a hallmark of worsening kidney function. And if that time the kidney function's not recovering, or they find these issues, referral to nephrologist for follow-up and further management of CKD would be indicated. Is there anything that I haven't asked you or we haven't discussed 
We think it's very important. And let's focus now on the hospital section. So there are a lot of hospitalists who listen to this, mm-hmm. a lot of house staff who listen to this. Have we covered all the things that you think are really important here? I do. I think I think the most important thing that I can stress is the understanding that small changes in creatinine do portend to poor prognosis. And the whole AKI definition awareness was made for that purpose. But that still means you need to work up the cause and the etiology. And to realize that the creatinine is such a poor marker of kidney function. Therefore, if you start seeing small changes, it's at that time you need to focus on what can you do differently to change what you're doing. Because by the time they progress to ATN, you're going to get the note from nephrologists that everyone in the world writes, avoid further nephrotoxins and supportive care to the kidney. It's a stamp that I could put on in, right. in, in any country. And so I think that is the key, is paying attention to trends and details and what can we change before you have irreversible damage or before you achieve ATN. And with that, I'd like to say that hopefully in the next several years, we'll have better biomarkers. We have already commercial kits available that may be able to predict AKI before we've gotten to the point where the creatinine changes and perhaps we can intervene earlier to prevent bad outcomes. Well, Ashid, I can't thank you enough. I think that this has been just a great discussion that focuses on the basics that we need to know as hospitalists. We have great renal colleagues and uh, they can certainly help us when we need renal replacement therapy and look over our shoulders and make sure we don't use the wrong medications that will continue to hurt the kidneys. But there's some basics everybody has to know, and I really like the way you describe them. Well, thank you so much. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This wide-ranging discussion of acute kidney injury hopefully gives uh, all of us a better idea of how to approach patients with elevated serum creatinines. Dr. Talwani helped us by making it clear that we should not label someone as having acute kidney injury until we've ruled out other causes for increased creatinine in a two-day, at least two-day period. During this time, we should consider volume contraction, do physical diagnosis, perhaps ultrasound, and perhaps a 500cc crystalloid fluid challenge to better diagnose volume contraction. And we should consider obstruction. We should never miss obstruction and say the patient has acute kidney injury without ruling out obstruction. Second, Dr. Talwani stress the importance of the urinalysis and complete interpretation of the urinalysis in helping us distinguish between kidney injury and other causes. And then when they have kidney injury, is this ATN, is this interstitial nephritis, or some other cause? She also stressed the importance of following the patient with weights and urine output. Basics, straightforward details that help us manage the patient better. Finally, we had a very interesting discussion of what to do after the patient is discharged, what the primary care physician's responsibility is to watch the patient and make sure they don't have early signs of developing chronic kidney disease. We certainly hope that you've learned a lot from this discussion. Thank you for listening to Annals on Call. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. 
participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.